0: Donna Maxey, a relentless advocate for equity and inclusion from her formative years to her impactful career in education and community activism. Donna's story is one of unwavering dedication to creating a more just and equitable society. Who is Donna Maxey? That's a good question. I was born in Portland at Emanuel Hospital. I am the fourth of five children for Charles and Johnny Maxi. My story has to start with my parents. My parents met each other the first day my mother came to college. She looked at him and said, that's the one. They had this torrid of a relationship. It was kind of like Frankie and Johnny. You know, they were lovers. And so they um, secretly got married in October of their sophomore year. There was a lot of scuttlebutt about them being together because my father came from a very poor family and my mother came from a family that had a black land farm and oil property. her people didn't like him because he was poor and he didn't like how his mother didn't like her because she was dark. My mother's father died when she was 18 months old. My father's parents split up much earlier, and his father was very abusive. But these two people came together and made a union and made a decision about the kind of family they wanted to have. They both came from families that they had a sense of community and a sense of responsibility to the community. One of the things that was unusual about my parents was they when they, they came during the Great Migration to to Oregon and Daddy had been a chauffeur the summer before to some white folks that went all over the country, and he was scouting places that they could move to. And uh, like most people who are suckers and they come to Oregon in the summertime, why it was beautiful, he thought he wanted to be here. And so they came to Oregon, not knowing what the history of Oregon was as a exclusionary state for black folks. So they moved to Oregon and, and and daddy's one of those people that's very independent. You know, if everybody else is going left, he's going right. You know, everybody else went, went east, so he went west. Everybody else went to California, so he went to north. Most black folks went to Washington. He went to Oregon. Most black folks became Republican. I mean, Democrats, he became a Republican. The Republicans were in in power here in this state. And on top of that, they were the most liberal branch of the Republican Party in the country. So, and as daddy said, you know, it didn't make much difference which party he joined. Neither one of them done much for black folks. So, you know, go with the power brokers on this one. And so he became very active in the Republican Party. He was the, as a young man, he was uh, he was the vice president, I believe, the vice president of Multnomah County uh, Young Republicans. My mother was active in the PTA at Boise School where my brothers and sisters went. And so I was always up at Boise School with Mom while she was doing PTA stuff, and I'd stay in... And uh, in the kindergarten classroom with Mrs. Grimet, who was my only black teacher. No, I had one in college. Mrs. Grimet was my was my kindergarten teacher. And um, so I, my brothers and sisters took off for school, and I wanted to go. And so they forged my birth certificate, and I got into kindergarten when I was four. Always felt the threat that I needed to be at the top of the class, or they would put me back. I'm going to tell you a story because this is going to come back later. My first grade teacher was Shirley Goal, Mrs. Shirley Gold, And I remember something that she did. She slapped me. We were, um, and I had never been slapped before, so I was just hysterical. And I cried all day, and she wouldn't let me go call my mother. So when I got home... I walked home, and I'm like, I'm going to tell my mama when I get home. And I started screaming and crying at the corner. And my mother came running out of the house. What's the matter? What's the matter? You know, so I told her. And uh, and she said, okay, come in the house. Had a treat. calm me down. call my dad. Told him he had the car at the barbershop. He was a barber at this time. He had been a teacher in the South, but couldn't get hired here. She told him, bring the car home. He said, no, and we'll talk about this when I get home, and you can go up tomorrow, but you're not going up there today. Do not walk up there. Calm down. So she came home. She came back up to the school, and the next day she said, tell your your teacher I'm coming to see her. Well, the teacher was like, cat on a hot tin roof all day. And my mother finally came up there and spoke with her and called me out into the hall. And my mother said, you have my permission to spank Donna. She has a posterior of the anatomy. If you need to spank her for not behaving, you can do that. And, but you are to call me if there's a problem. And if my child says she needs to call home, then I expect that she will be allowed to to call home. She says, and I don't slap my children. Do you slap your children? And the answer was, well, of course not. She says, well, I think as much of this little brown baby as you think of your white ones. Don't you ever put your hand in my child's face again. Because if you do, this time I'm coming to talk to you. Next time I'm going to go come and get your job. And as an adult, I had an opportunity to meet Shirley Goal again. And when I saw her, she looked very similar to what she had looked like when I was a child. And I was in my mid-30s at this point, and I thought, should I say anything? And I thought, yeah, I'm going to tell her. I'm going to tell her. And so I walked up and I introduced myself. She was in the legislature by this time, uh, Speaker of the House. And... And I, the Oregon legislature. And so I asked her if she remembered me. She goes, well, I don't remember you. I remember the family name, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, I need to share something with you. And I shared this story with her. And she was, needless to say, she was aghast and appalled at what she had done. I'm so, I, don't, I don't know why I would have done that. I'm so sorry. I said, no, no, this, I'm telling you this because this had, has a good result. And the result is that I said I would never do that to a child, and it has made me a better teacher. So I went to um, Elliot through fifth grade. Uh, have a I'll mention Sharon Gary because Sharon Gary probably saved me. Um, Sharon is very bright. We were crib mates. We our parents all went to Bethel Church. Uh, along with Robbie Robinson, Warren Robinson, who's, who's a minister now. And Sharon was extremely bright and confident. She was the oldest child in the family. I was the youngest at the time. And because of Sharon, it pushed me to excel more. And so I think as a result, I'm, I'm, and I'm competitive. So it pushed me to excel. And I really appreciate that. And I, and I, I think it has been a, a foundation for me to to excel and to push. I mean, I had it from my family, but when you're when you have one of your peers that you're with every day, that's really you know it's a different kind of effect. I mean, you're not doing it for for just for your parents' approval. You're doing this because now it becomes a part of who you are as a person. So, um, So, uh, Sharon and I stayed together through fifth grade, and at that time, at the end of fifth grade, was when our families got wiped out by um, urban renewal, as I like to call it, urban renewal, Negro removal. And um, they moved out to southeast, and we moved up to northeast, and I went to Highland School. So sixth through eighth grade, I went to Highland School. There were a lot more white kids at that school. Um, more challenging curriculum, more academic opportunities. Um, It wasn't an upper socioeconomic level school, but it was a a strong working class, uh, more white working class community. But the curriculum was different than it was at Elliott, and the expectations were higher. We had some great teachers at the school. We had uh, Hellois Hill. Mrs. Hill was African-American. Her husband, Shelly Hill, was the president of the NAACP. All of these people, I mean, every day I got to see the the level of expectations for what a teacher should be and what students should be taught like. Finished out at Highland and went to Jefferson High School. Um, Very important thing that happened was the first time I went in to see the counselor. And my brothers and sisters had gone to Jefferson and had to fight for the for the opportunity to be involved in school activities. They had no activities for black girls. They only had activities for black boys, which was sports. But there were clubs, there were committees, all kinds of things. Um, my second sister, Virginia, was the first black person to be on the on the dance team. Um, my older sister, whose name then was Carol. And Virginia helped form a girls' club. And it was an integrated club. And the vice principal, Mrs. Flagel, Miss Flagel, uh, was a very racist person, as, as were many of the teachers and, and administrators, and had a fit because these girls wanted to have a slumber party. My parents went up and fought that fight. So when I went to high school, I went understanding that i had an obligation to get good grades i had an obligation to be active in that in that high school community behind all of this love and and happiness that i grew up with as a child there is an undertone of of racism in the community there's an undertone of racism in the country an undertone of racism in the world. And what I came to realize is that it's not just racism. It is, it's isms of all kind. Um, And the isms are based on holding other people down. Because what I find, what I learned is that people build their self-esteem by stepping on somebody else's. And so my parents were, before their time, we had family meetings and everybody got to voice their opinion. We we got to pick what we wanted out for dinner. Um, now you had a limited choice of what you could pick from, but on a certain night it was your night to pick maybe the vegetable, or or the dessert or whatever. And um, and those are important kinds of things to do with your kids. They don't cost money, but they do build certain kind of character. We still lived on Borthwick. So I'd ride up to the store with my dad, help work in the store for an hour, and then um, go to school, come home, work two, three hours every night after after school. It wasn't until a couple of years ago I realized that I had a half time job at 10. So I worked about 20 hours a week at least. And um, there were people who came in the store that were older than my parents. And so anyway... I asked my parents why did why did those people not know how to read and write? And they said because a lot of them came from the South, they hadn't had the opportunity to go to school, or they had to leave school early and and, and, and in talking to them found out that they had to leave school early and they needed to go help support the family. And so I decided I wanted to be a teacher and and teach older people how to read and write so that there wouldn't be generations coming afterwards who would need that. Um, My parents' daddy, I should say, said, that's gonna be hard because people still have to go to work and they're gonna drop out most likely. So I thought about it and said, okay, rather than be a teacher of adults, I'll be a teacher of smaller children and make sure that they have the education they need. And I'll be like Mrs. Hill and Mr. Brown and have high expectations and make sure that my kids know how to get up and speak in front of a camera. Make sure that my kids know how to study, make sure that my kids are the top. That's why I became a teacher. I started teaching, student teaching at 20. Um, I went to Pacific University in Forest Grove, which is a very white, racist area. The banks Oregon had, which was like 10, 15 miles away, had uh, the largest Ku Klux Klan branch west of the mississippi and unbeknownst to me at the time but um and i got a good education at pacific to become a teacher we were thoroughly prepared to be teachers and so i um when i graduated i left and went and uh, taught in northern california um, north of sacramento in oroville which was the largest black population north of Sacramento until you get to the Oregon border, and you know what you got at the Oregon border, so that was that was very interesting. I was the first and only black teacher in this small town. Um, what I didn't mention was that I got married right out of college um, and and so my husband and I, who was white and Jewish. We got married on Friday night. We had a reception Saturday night. We drove to Chico on Sunday and Monday. I went, drove to Oroville to go to work. <laughs> so, yeah, we, 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 were, we were seriously into, into doing it. And uh, so I, I was, I learned so much about people. Even though I had been around white people, I didn't know white people. And so there were so many things, and and it wasn't even, it wasn't being married to him. Because the thing about being married to a person or being in love with a person is when you turn the lights off, all men are the same. And when you love somebody, you don't see their color. You see them, you don't see them through your eyes, you see them through your heart. And... About every six months, I'd wake up, and he'd be glowing in the dark. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'd turn on the light, and I'd be looking at him. And he'd, like, he'd wake up, and be like, w- what are you doing? I said, looking at you. <laughs> and he'd like, well, okay, why are you looking at me? Like, you're white. You go, yeah, didn't you know that? I said, I know you're white, but you're white. And it would, like, hit me. What I was doing, what I had done, that I had married a white man. (laughs) It's like, are you crazy? (laughs) You know, you married a white man. And the history that had been between, particularly between white men and black women, and I'd have to calm myself down. It's like, you know, this man loves you. My mother used to tell me, I don't think Steve likes anybody, any black people except you. I said, it's not true. Steve doesn't like anybody except me. So, you know, and, uh, but it was, it it was an experience where I learned that I had a responsibility. I had seen my parents do stuff, but I knew that I had a responsibility to that whole black community that I started teaching at 21 and, and everybody was resting on my shoulders. And so it made me have even more of a fight to to take care of my people. And while I was married to Steve, who happened to be white and Jewish, uh, I was 21 years old when I married him, and I was black before I married him. And that had nothing to do with who I was. In fact, he would always say how come you speak to every black person when you walk past? And it's like, that's what black people do. And we're the only ones here. And, uh, you know, don't you do that too? Well, Jews don't do that. I said, no, nah, but there's other ways that you have of knowing that they're Jews, either by how they look or by name, but some kind of way it comes out. I so, said, you know, you can speak too if you want, but I'm going to keep speaking. Steve and I were together 10 years, college and marriage. I got a divorce when our daughter was a year and a half, and I realized I could not do 24 hours a day children. Somebody's child was gonna suffer, and I didn't want anybody's sh- child to suffer because I couldn't give my best. So I got out of teaching and went and sold copiers, went and, um, went and worked in state government at, in California, worked in the a state department and legislature, um, yeah, I did a lot of things there, um, and went off and did other kinds of things until I could, you know, get back into teaching. So I, I went back into teaching probably in 1983, left, left that field. My daughter was older and could handle it more. She was in third grade by this time, so I was able to go back and start teaching again. Um, left or left California in 85 and then came to Oregon, taught here for five years um, and I had asked to be put at a black school and they put me at Rose City Park and I'm like, oh, so this area is black now. The first day I went in to talk to the principal like, so this area is black now? So so what percent of the students are, 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 um, are black? He goes, oh, about 28, 30. I said, 30% of the students here are black? He goes, oh, no, that's about how many we have. I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I asked to go to a school where there are black children so I could be a role model for them. He goes, oh, but white children need a role model too. I said, great, let a white person be a role model for them. I'm not saying that I'm not gonna be a good teacher. I'm not gonna mistreat children, but I think that my my services are better used with black children. And I did finally get to go there, but I, I didn't get to do it that trip. So I got remarried, moved to California, did some other things, went back into teaching, did did some other things as the nonprofit directors, a couple of different nonprofits, and then came back to Portland in the, late, in the late 90s when my mother had a stroke to help take care of my mom and my dad who had had a massive heart attack at 46. And so they needed support. So um, I came back to Portland. My oldest sister, Carol, came back to Portland too from Israel to live. and i did get into school administration i went and got my administrative credential but i was told that i was by my administrator that i was not qualified to be an administrator and i thought well i'm going to go and start taking the classes anyway and the woman who was the head of the education department at portland state said Not qualified. You're the most qualified person in this class. You could go and be a principal now without taking any more of the classes. So she said, don't worry about it. You're going to be in the program. And normally you had to have the principal's permission to do it, but I got put in the program without that and got my administrative credential um, and never got into any of the, the pools. I applied for a vice principal pool, and was not allowed a, uh, an interview and was told that I was threatening the woman in in HR because I went and asked, and this is important because the, this story I'm about to tell is important because it kind of tells who I am and have become as an adult and why I started race talks. And so I I went, when I didn't get in the vice principal pool I went, made an appointment to ask, what was it? How did I do on my, you know, um, I didn't even get an interview. I just did the application and wasn't accepted. And so my question was, what did, what did I need to do differently? What did I do and what do I need to do differently? And she told me that she felt that I was threatening her. I'm like, excuse me? I'm not quite sure I understand how I'm threatening you. All I'm doing is asking you a question. I haven't raised my voice. I haven't called you out of your name. I haven't threatened that I will hit you or hurt you. So I'm not quite sure how I'm threatening you. And it was much, much later that I came to realize that folks expect you to fall over and play dead. And if they say you're not qualified, then you just go away with your tail between your your legs and do it. Not the kid. Not doing that. You need to tell me how I am, what I've done, and what I need to do to make it better. And so um, she ended up going to investigate. When I went for the first interview, she came back and and uh, told me what, what the results were. So I was blackballed, basically, what it was. I would get to the top of the heap, like, you know, they had a, a program for people who were aspiring administrators who were showing promise and stuff. I got in that program. But there was someone blocking blocking me from moving further. So I finally realized, okay, you're not going to be an administrator and just said screw it and kept going. I did do a job that was that Portland Public Schools has um Put in a position of being a teacher's, a teacher's um, job, but you have usually they hire teachers who have an administrative credential, so it's kind of a pre-administrative position, uh, and that was a student management specialist. Adam, um, and they have those at elementary and middle schools, and uh, and at high schools, the person in charge of student management is a vice principal. This was just a continuation I, when I came back in the 90s of the kind of things I had been doing before. When we did these activities at our school, there were some people at our school. Who, I think teachers act like the kids they teach. Elementary school teachers like want everybody to be fair. Um, middle school teachers are, can be mean girls. And they start making their clicks, um, and the boys can be bullies. And high school, they just do it even more. You know, like they're they're kind of cool kids. You know, the cool kids and the outside kids, and and um, and so we had some teachers who were mean girls. There were some boys in that group too, but you know, they. I mean, I. I had white teachers coming in my office crying for how they were being treated by these people. And when we brought the information about the activities, there was one particular activity that was, uh, there was a film we showed, it was about Cesar Chavez and the growers and and the protest for against lettuce and grapes. And each, the folks were divided up into groups and say, okay, who are the main characters in this story? What is their point of view and why is this important, this point of view, and, you know, it's just made everybody look at it from a different point of view, you know, a full circle of looking at everybody's position. And some of those mean girls got it. And I thought, wow, there's something to this that, but the problem is that this is connected to people's paycheck. And if it's connected to people's paycheck, then people will say whatever they they get paid to say. So we need to have this in the community so that it is not connected to people's paychecks, and it's it's an opportunity for people to sit down and talk about all kinds of issues through a lens of race, and to and to get to talk to other people and not have it have have the threat overhead of I might get fired if I say the wrong thing so that's how race talks got started yeah race is always race is only important in that it is a part of our social structure and race is just an easy all of the isms racism sexism classism educationism um did i say sexism all of those isms are ways to divide people up and put them into a class put them into a structure so these are the people who if you have these attributes you automatically are the power structure this group over here, if you have these attributes, you automatically are not part of the power structure. And so it's just race is just an easier way to to do to, to, to define who people are. Um, so if I if I look out at a group of people, like, okay, this group is the white group. So those are the top they're the smart ones, the the top ones. They're white, they're pure they're okay. These people are black, they're bad, they're stupid, they're lazy, and then you fit everybody in in between. So race is important, you know, and it's like I used to tell my kids, and and one of the things that I did, I was so happy that I left the classroom because I got to see for the first time how what I was teaching actually worked in the real world. And so I came back a better teacher after I had left teaching than I had been before, because before I was idealistic. Now I had life experience to go along with my teaching. So as I told my kids, life is a game, and you know what all games have, like a ball, a bat, a net, No, games have rules. And if you don't know the rules, you can't win the game. And life is a game, that the rules are not written down. So you have to have somebody who teaches you the rules, who's either from your family or they guide, you know, develop mentors that will help you to navigate what the rules are. And you can circumvent some of those isms race, class, all of those things. You can circumvent some of those things, or you can navigate them more easily by having someone who is a guide for you. So race, yeah, it needs to be discussed. I mean, just like poverty needs to be discussed, just like all topics need to be discussed. So in my classroom, did I teach CRT? Yes, I did. I started teaching that when I first started teaching in 1970. Didn't know that's what it was called. It was not part of the curriculum. But in my class, kids learned about race. I have a very egalitarian image of who people are. We all are the same. We all want the same things. I mean, one of the things I really rely on heavily is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And down at the bottom is safety, food, shelter. And it's it's a pyramid. And at the very top was self-actualization. And there's a new level that they've added to that, which is... Um, mm. It's kind of like asc- ascending, you know, going beyond where you are. Um, and forgiving people and and being able to see an issue from a global perspective and how it needs to work. And so race needs to be discussed just because it's part of what our system is. I mean, even if everybody in this country was all black, as I heard an African woman saying, we never talk about race or color, you know, in our country, not color, but not, we never talk about race because everybody's black and, or in Europe, everybody was white, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets along. And so all the other issues, the other isms are still a part of those societies and race is just another issue that needs to be discussed when you intermingle people. Yeah. Uh, one that changed my life a lot, it's from Eleanor Roosevelt, um, who was heavily influenced by Mary McLeod Bethune. And each of them had uh, a quote that, I, that I've that i always felt were very important. Mary McLeod Bethune's was one that I heard first, which was, if Mary McLeod Bethune's slip is hanging, then tell her. It won't do any good to tell anybody else. She's the only one who can do something about it. And I thought that that said it all, because we as people tend to talk about each other. And again, it's that, it's kind of like letting somebody walk out of the restroom and, you know, let a woman walk out of the restroom and there's toilet, Her the back of her skirt is up or there's toilet tissue hanging out off the shoe or something like that, and you don't say anything. um, Don't talk about that person to other people, go tell that person. So they can, because they're the only one who can do, do anything about it. And so I think a lot of times we as humans, and it's not just human behavior because I, with my second husband, I watched a lot of animal shows and I realized it's mammalian behavior. And there's also some, you know, it's not just mammals that do some of those behaviors. You can see it in other species too, the the survival of the fittest and such. So that's one quote. The other quote that I didn't come into until I was in my mid-40s was Eleanor Roosevelt's small-minded people Small minds talk about people. Um, Average minds talk about things. Great minds talk about ideas. And I really started getting into that quote in the early 2000s and working to live up to that. And what happens when you change whether you change income or you change mindset or you change location, you end up finding that people who have always been a part of your life maybe don't fit into your life anymore because you have changed and you've moved on to another way of being. So while that quote was meaningful and it made me decide to try to think about, uh, talk about ideas, which Race Talks is an extension of that quote, um, at the same time it's taken me 20-something years to deal with the side effects slash fallout of what that means to become that kind of person. Donna Maxey isn't going to be remembered very long. And and let me give you the understanding of why, what I'm saying so that it makes more sense. I presently have 74 and 11 twelfths years old. And who knows how long I'll live. Um, I might, you know, my dad died at 84 with a bad heart. My mother lived to be 101 and had survived 24 years of a stroke. So I got some tough genes that I got on both sides of the family. Um, I don't think it's, I think it's more about how, it's not about what they say about me, because I've had people say some interesting things about me. I was just talking to a young man about that last night. You cannot control what people say. And most people don't really know who you are. My experience has been that most people see me, I used to say it was a duck. I'm starting to say people see me as being a swan. Very graceful, floating across the water, just calm, (laughs) dipping my head into the, to the water every so often, just everything just seems very easy and graceful. But what people don't know is if you look underwater, those little legs are going like this. And there's a whole lot of sweat coming off. And it ain't easy. And it ain't fun all the time. But you do what you have to do. So now, that's how I really move through life on a daily basis. When I was reading history, I thought about Herodotus who was a Greek philosopher. He, well, he wasn't a philosopher, he was a gossip is what he was. He reported a bunch of stuff that was going on at the time during the ancient Greeks, ancient Romans. And it occurred to me that there are millions and millions and millions of people who have been in the world. And Herodotus' name is one that you remember. Aristotle's one that you remember. Plato is one that you remember. You, you hear these names of people, but how many other people were there out there that you don't hear their name? So I'm real realistic about that. Chances are you're not going to hear my name. In 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, you might not hear my name. What you will have, though, is the effects of who I was as a person. There's this young woman who is 47, that I taught her in fourth and fifth grade. And I ran into her when I was passing out race talks brochures. And it was really funny because she looked at me and she goes, you look like this woman I used to know named Donna Pomerantz. Did you used to be Donna Pomerantz? And I said, "Uh, I still am. (laughs) You know, I just go by my maiden name now. And she said, oh, my God, you were my teacher in fourth and fifth grade. I have no idea how much you meant to me. And I thought, wow. And I I had just read a few days ago, before that, a book that I call my ego book. And I call it my ego book because I have letters and things and pictures from when I first started teaching. And her letter was one that I kept because she drew a picture of the classroom. And on that letter, it said, I was leaving teaching. And um, on that letter, it said, you have no idea how much you mean to me. And she used those same words as an adult. And I thought, this is really something. This, this, those words mean something. And so I got back in touch with her and said, hey, I got to go speak to Reynolds School District to some teachers. I want to know more about what it was that I did that meant so much to you. And so at the end of our conversation, when I went over to her house, I was stunned. She had two children. She had a world map on the on the wall. They had pins on the wall of where they would pick a country. Every month they would pick a different country to do their culture. They would go visit things and eat the food and learn about it. And, she, you know, and because they we had done that in my class. She was talking about how they how the kids in the class used to discuss the racism at the school and how there were things that were unfair that where they saw racism happening to me as the only black teacher in that school and how they saw that their classroom um there were like 10 kids on spe- in special ed in that fourth fifth grade level i had eight of them in my classroom And so, I mean, it just was my, you know, and and I got in trouble with the parents because the movie Eye on the Prize came out and my kids, we watched it every week and discussed it. And uh, the kids were coming home talking about it and such. So I kept my butt in a sling all the time. But what I found out from listening to her is that I affected her life. And not only did I affect her life, I affect her children's lives. And her daughter ended up in fourth grade having to do a report for Black History and Women's History Month. And her daughter chose to be me. And because the kids were... The, it was really a cool project. It was at Alameda School, and the kids had to select someone, and then they they dressed up as the person and talked as that person. I don't think people are going to remember Donna Max and have much to say. But I do think they're going to feel my effect. And I can't ask for any more than that. All the things that people touched on, and I want you to think about this. I saw some hands that did not go up in this room, having, having had a malogram. It is so important to get it, and it's so important to listen to your body. So don't let anybody tell you, and you did. Don't do that. You, you were perfect. Hang in there. Just get in their face and say, I am going to survive. Black women and, and, and Latino women are the greatest ones dying from these diseases. And cancer is an emotional disease. It's an emotional disease. There's a book you need to get called, You Can Heal Your Life. It talks about all the diseases that you can, diseases that you do get. And what is the emotional impact that causes it in your body? You should get that book. It will tell, tell you a whole lot of things. What's the book called? You Can Heal Your Life. It's by Louise Haying. It's a, a rainbow. rainbow heart on the cover and it has a whole section about all these different diseases that we have in our bodies and affirmations that you can say the mind is powerful use it thanks for tuning in to Oregon Hidden Legacy for more information about this podcast go to oregonhiddenlegacy.org